0: It's the second week of the new year or the second week of a new decade. And uh, something different that you find today is you will have discovered that there are our new handbooks uh, lying on your seats as you take your seats uh, today. Uh, We publish that every year so that we will keep you informed of some of the activities that have been lined up for the year 2020. Um, If you wish, you may actually ask for um, extra copies so that you can pass it to a friend or pass it to somebody uh, who, for whom you are praying to invite to come to services or join our church activities. Now, last week, um, Pastor Chris mentioned that one of the Bible books that we are preaching through uh, this year or from the start of this year is Genesis. And there's an intended pun, Genesis, which means beginning. Beginning at the beginning of the new year. Genesis is also a book along with four others, comprising the Pentateuch, uh, which was uh, given to the Israelites, very likely by Moses, as they are about to begin their nationhood under God in the Promised Land. And so if the Pentateuch, of which Genesis is a part of, if it was written for the Israelites during their 40-year residence in the wilderness, what Genesis says to them, particularly to the younger generations who are about to enter the promised land, what it says to them, what it says to them must mean something to us as well. So for starters, let me just say something about Genesis 1. Genesis 1, chapter 1 is not your science textbook. Okay, it's not your science textbook, textbook that tells you how the world began. It's not the book that explains the origins of the universe or how living organisms came to be. So yes, one may use Genesis to challenge the teaching of evolution or the Big Bang, but if you do that, one will miss out on the far more important intent of the book. And what was that intent? It's to answer the question, who is God and why did he create you and I, and why did He create the world? And so to answer that question simply, we will find out that God is the one who created the universe. God is the one who turned the earth's formlessness and emptiness into fullness, orderliness, and beauty. So the first slide comes up, Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters now the descriptions without form void the descriptions formless and empty darkness they reveal to us that without god's creative work the earth was far from a piece of art, if not chaotic even. So I recently just watched a documentary about, uh, on the Thai boys who were trapped in the cave. Did you watch that? It's produced by, I think, Netflix. And uh, I, while I was watching that documentary, I imagined with dread how it must have felt trapped in a cold, dark, wet place with murky water gushing in, not knowing whether one will survive will one will make it out alive or not. So if that is already scary and chaotic, how much more? A place that is formless, a place that is dark, and a place that is empty. But we read that God transformed the formless, empty, dark earth. And how does He do that? Next slide. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. So on the first day of God's work of creation, he commanded light into the dark earth. And he set boundaries between light and darkness, calling them day and night. Now let's continue to read what of God God has done. Uh, Next slide. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. That were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Your turn. Next slide. and there was evening and there was morning the third day your turn okay wait maybe we should stop there third day okay thank you third day so by the third day of creation god what do we discover god redeemed the formlessness of the earth by giving it by giving it form and so here's the slide that comes up a table so you see Day one up to day three, day one, there's day and night. And on day two, God created the skies, which, is called, which he calls the expanse, uh, to separate the water above and the water below. And on the third day, day three, God created dry land and let it sprout plants and trees bearing <clears throat> fruit. Excuse me. Now, from day four forward onward, God reversed now the voidness and emptiness of the earth. So, having put for God now is about to fill the earth with contents. And uh, this is a uh, next slide comes up and let me read that. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs, be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Your turn. Next slide. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Next slide, your turn. Thank you very much for doing that. We just did the public reading of scripture. So from days four to day six, God fills the once empty earth with beautiful things. So another slide comes up. Day four, you now have the sun and the moon as we call call it. However, in Genesis, they're simply called the greater and the lesser light. And then on day five, God fills the skies with birds and the seas with water creatures and bless them to be fertile and to multiply. And lastly, on day six, he creates land animals to fill the earth, and he also created man. Now notice as we read those uh, passages uh, concerning the creation account, notice the, the repeated phrases that we read. Uh, next slide. You will have noticed the phrase, And God said. Many times, showing us that God creates through the power of His spoken word. The phrase, let there be, or let, dot, dot, showing us that God issues a command. And whenever God issues a command, what happens is that whatever God will, it comes to pass. So, that's why we see the phrase, and there was, blank, and it was so." Whatever God wills, it comes to pass. So he separated the waters from waters. It was so. And there's also this phrase, God called. So God's calling, the dry ground earth. God's calling, the expanse heaven. It's his, his calling reveals his dominion. Dominion because he is the supreme ruler. He is the king Who names his subjects? He is the king who names the nations. He is the king who names a certain land. He is the king. And then we also saw the phrase, and God saw that it was good. It is God's evaluation of his work. And what was the evaluation of his work? It was good. So the Creator was pleased and was satisfied with what he made. In fact, to emphasize the epitome of his creation, which is the creation of man on the sixth day, God's evaluation by the sixth day has a slight uh, change. It was no longer good. It was very good. And then lastly, you see the phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning. God completed his creative work in an orderly fashion. So it's not like, do, and it's all done. There was order, day one, day two, day three, until day six. He did it in an orderly fashion, took care to put form to what was formless, and then adding contents to the once empty earth. Now you may ask, what was the significance of the six-day creation? Now, like I said, if we bear in mind that Genesis is not Your science textbook that tries to explain the origins of the universe. And mind you, science is always developing, isn't it? It's ever developing. So I remember when I was in elementary school, my teacher made us memorize the nine planets of the solar system. And my teacher made us draw the nine planets on the solar system on a big A3 sheet, made us color the nine planets of the solar system, made us memorize the nine planets of the solar system. Only for me to discover that 30 years later, Pluto is no longer a planet. And I also realized later in life that there's actually one simple way to memorize uh, the, the nine planets of the solar system. Have you heard of it? My very educated mother serves just serves us nine pizzas. So from the first letter of those words, you remember Mercury, Venus, Earth. My very educated mother just serves us nine pizzas. But they kicked out Pluto. So what happens? My very educated mother just serves us nachos. <laughs> so it's a downgrade. You kick out one planet, and so does the pizza. That is science. It's very interesting, but still and always developing. And so take heart that Genesis is not your changing science textbook attempting to explain the origin of our world. It's not. And since it is not, then the message of the six-day creation simply tells us of God's power and his constant daily involvement in our world. What do I mean by that? Now, did you read of the news of this Japanese man who was battling against a convenience store company? I'm not going to mention the name. He was battling against this convenience store company because he lost his franchise contract to run his convenience store. Why? Why did he lose the contract? Because he had decided to close shop one day. And of course, the convenience store chain cancelled his license. Why? Because closing shop for one day is out of line. You don't do that. A convenience store is supposed to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, seven days a week. And the message, perhaps, of the six-day creation reveals to us that God is very much involved in our daily lives, 24-7. There is not a day that He closes shop. The only difference, of course, is that he did not create 24-7. So next slide. Genesis chapter 2 tells us, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done, in creation, So God did his work of creating in six days. And on the seventh, he rested. He rested not because he was exhausted or tired from all the work. God rested because his creation work was now complete. God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. That's what chapter 2 tells us. It was now a time... To celebrate, now a time to enjoy. So God's rest is what I call a divine staycation. So you and I, we like to leave work and go on a vacation. But after God had finished His work, He decided to have a staycation and enjoy it. And there's something special about the divine staycation. It occurs on the seventh day, we were told. And the phrase seventh day is mentioned Three times. What's so special about that day is that it's a day that God blessed. Yes, He blessed the animals. Yes, He blessed man. But here is the first time God blessed a day. And what's special too about this divine staycation is that it seemed to be a very long staycation, like a long holiday. It's extended. Why? Because we do not read of the usual. And there was evening and there was morning to somehow wrap the seventh day. And so it suggests to us that the original intention was for God to rest and to dwell with man from henceforth. Only will we realize later as we read chapters 2 and 3 that sin came into the world and disrupted that rest. And so, who is God? According to the creation account, who is God as revealed to us from the creation account? Well, to the wandering Israelites, Genesis chapter 1 reveals to them that God, the God of Israel, is not a small G-O-D who happened to have won the face-off against Pharaoh and his magicians. Uh, You recall the challenge, right? Moses, Moses, through his staff, it became a snake. And Pharaoh's magicians, they said they weren't impressed. They were able to replicate the staff turned to snake. And Moses then turned the water into blood. And Pharaoh's magicians, they they did the same thing. One may think that it was a neck-to-neck battle between gods, between powers. Not until the first quarter when the magicians could no longer match the god of Moses. The Lord sent gnats, the Lord sent flies, the Lord rained downhill, and Pharaoh's sorcerers, they could no longer catch up. They exclaimed, this is the finger of God! We are all ruined, they said. So what, the led, what led the Lord to win? Genesis chapter 1 gives us the answer. The Lord is the creator of all things. He is the one who created the sun. He is the one who created the moon, the stars, the land, and the seas, and the animals by the power of his spoken word. That's why he can send gnats. That's why he can send frogs. He can send hail. So, who is God? He is not just one of the small GODs of Egypt, he is not a collectible deity territorial deity. He is, on the contrary, the God who created the universe and everything in it by the power of His spoken word. So Psalm 33, we read that at the beginning of the service. Psalm 33, 6-9 to nine tells us, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for He spoke, and it came to be He commanded and it stood firm. So with this revelation god 's people they are now called to worship not just one of the gods of, Egypt, of the Egyptians or just one of the gods of the Canaanites, they are called to worship God and God alone. Last week, I had the opportunity of doing a Bible study with a teacher from this school who just came to faith, and uh, after the study, he asked me, if I follow the God of the Bible, what do I do with the other gods that my parents brought me up to believe in? You know, that's not a common question coming from new converts. It sounds like a little bit like, is this God that I am believing one of the gods that religion has to offer? Sounds like it. And what the creation account tells us that no, God is not one of your little gods. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who created you and I. In fact, creation shows us that God is the creator. So the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he says, What can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to man. Because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his divine power, his eternal nature, or rather eternal power and divine nature, they have been Clearly perceived, they have been uh, seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So what Paul is saying is that if you look at creation, you cannot deny the fact that God exists. The existence of the invisible God is seen in the visible things that he has made. Creation tells us, in short, that you and I have no excuse to say, Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that God made this. All along, I thought it was the Big Bang. Uh, The Bible says, No, you are without excuse. You clearly knew that there is a God who created all these. So Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What is the psalmist saying here? If you look at the skies, do you hear any speech? No, you don't. But the psalmist says, There is. The speech, the skies are crying out loud through an inaudible speech they are crying out and saying we are god's handy work without saying it to you just displaying the marvelous display of god's work they are telling us we are god's handy work you know as i look at genesis 1 and as i look at portions of psalms when i ponder upon these truths i concluded That God's creation ought to bring us to the awe, the praise, and the worship of the Creator. Now friends, we all love beautiful sceneries, don't we? You do. I see them in your Instagram posts. We all love snow-capped mountains. We all love the northern lights. And not too long ago, some of you loved the annular eclipse. But did we pause, not merely to be awed by the beauty, but did we pause to be awed by the Creator who made it all? It's different. It's different to be awed by the scenery. It's different to be awed, to be filled with awe upon the Creator who made all this. Why? Because it is God's showmanship. He is the ultimate showman who deserves praise. Now, some of you know that uh, we recently got a dog. And so when I play with our dog, Coco, Coco is his name, whenever I marvel at his cleverness, when I'm, I'm humored by his antics, you know what I do? I actually pause to praise God for his beautiful creation. Man's best friend, as what we call it man's best friend, given to us by the Creator. That is why I say grace with Him. For the kibbles and for the chicken and for the meat. The dog may not understand it, but he knows that once I say amen, that's the cue that he can start eating. (laughs) Are you not awed that a dog could love you, could entertain you, could welcome you home and lick you up? Well, don't be awed by the dog. It's not the dog. It's God who created the animals. Now, if creation should lead us to stand in awe of Him, as a psalmist would say, then you and I, you know what? You and I should spend less screen time And more scene time. Less screen time and more scene time. Why? Because screen time is the awe of our own creation, isn't it? It's the awe of the videos that we make, it's the awe of the games that we design, the stuff that we shop, or the clothes that we put on. Screen time is the celebration of our own creation. Or at least we think it's our creation. Because actually the word create in Scripture is apparently exclusively used of God's activity. Humans do not create. We merely make, form, or build. But God, He is the one who creates. And yet we idolize our own making, We worship our own building, our own forming, and we call it our creation. And then we pat ourselves on the back. Now, I must confess that recently I discovered that of myself embarrassingly when I helped one of our deacons uh, fix his uh, espresso machine. So... um, He gave me his espresso machine to fix. I uncovered it. I took out all my tools, my shiny wrench set, and I dug up under the wires, replaced a switch, replaced some Teflon tubings. And I was very proud of myself to be able to fix it. So proud that even after the machine was already working fine, I had to open it up again and take a look at my handiwork and pat myself on the back. Even though that was far from creating, I was just simply repairing. You know, we idolize our own work. We pat ourselves on the back instead of praising God for giving us wisdom. Instead of bowing down before God because of His far awesome work. That is why God confused the language of the men who sought to build the tower at Babel, because they wanted to build it to make a name for themselves. So friends, creation must lead us to stand in awe of God who created them all. That means that you and I must make it a deliberate effort to gaze at God's creation and respond in praise and awe. When was the last time you did, you did that? Gaze at God's, the beauty of God's creation, and respond in awe and praise. Perhaps singing even, How Great Thou Art! The next time you gaze at the mountains, the, the, the next time you see birds chirping, respond to praise Him, for He made all these for us. What else does Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, tell us? Well, consider the most significant creation, man, who is made in God's image. You will have noticed that when God created living things, when He created vegetation and animals, notice that God created them according to their kinds. Did you see that phrase? According to its kind, according to their kinds. But when it came to the creation of man, God says, Let us make man according to his kind. No, God didn't say that. Let us make man, instead, he said, in our image, in our likeness. And the summary statement is in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It tells us that we are distinct, that we are unlike Other living things. We are distinct in that we are made in God's image. We reflect Him. We represent Him. We shine Him. We have a representative role that is distinct from animals and plants and trees. Why? Because they are not called to rule the earth, but we are called to rule the earth for God. We are called to manage it. We are called to exercise dominion over it, just as God would. For we are his representatives. Now, I'd like you to ponder with me upon that thought. See, we are made in God's image. That means we resemble him, that in many ways we are like God. And up to this point, in Genesis 1 up to, 2, up to chapter 2, verse 3, what can we know about God in managing the world is that is that God blesses Did you catch that God blesses He empowers animals he bless them He empowers humans he bless them to flourish to prosper And it leads us to ask the question if we are representatives of God up to this point how are we as his representatives how are we with blessing others as God's image bearers as his representatives Do we shine for him? Time magazine published a very interesting trivia in the year 2015 that caught my attention. And the title of that publication is, What's the World's Deadliest Creature? Make a guess. The world's deadliest creature, the findings are a surprise. It says, no, it's not sharks. Why? Because sharks may be scary, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. But in 2014, they only killed three people worldwide. No, it's not the elephant, because elephants only kill about 300 people per year. The world's deadliest creature is, drumroll, mosquitoes. Yep, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes kill 755,000 people a year. Next on the list, Snails, so if you love to eat snails, careful. Snails kill 200,000 people every year with parasitic disease. And it lists further. But at the bottom of that long list, there's a very fine print, a footnote that says, From car accidents to murder, humans kill more humans each year than any animal does. And what's the number? It's a staggering rate of 1.6 million per year. So who is the world's deadliest creature? It's us. And that is a sad fact, isn't it? That though we are considered the highest of all species because of our intelligence, and now that the Word of God tells us that we are distinct from animals because we are the ones created in God's image and likeness, we humans behave far worse than animals. We are the deadliest creature of all. Man is supposedly the most beautiful of God's creation. He is the most God-like among all. He is empowered to bless like his maker who created him in his image. Yet sadly, he turns out to be the deadliest. And how this came about, we shall learn in detail when we get to Genesis 3. Where we shall learn, we shall be told, that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And that came through, through all men, because all sin. So the one man who was supposed to bless brought about the curse of death because of sin. And so, though we bear God's image... The image is now marred. It would take another man to reverse the effects of sin and death, save us from sin, and move us to obey God's word and empower us to bless again. And that man is Jesus Jesus, God's Son. He was sent by the Creator to redeem us from the darkness and the chaos that we live in because of sin. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we who believe in Him, we are now given new life. Now we are called to imitate Christ. Now we are called to be Christ-like. Now we are called to bear the Son's image. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, He will bring with Him the new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the first heaven and the first earth will have passed away by the time Jesus comes to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So that's Genesis chapter 1 for us, friends. Reminding us our beginnings so that we can begin the new year, so that we can begin the new decade consciously gazing at God's creation and stand in awe and praise of him so that we be taught to get rid of idolatry the idolatry of other gods the chasing of other fantasies the idolatry of the self and give God and God alone worship so that we are now called to listen and obey his powerful life-changing word God speaks It's powerful. And so we ought to listen to His Word. So that we be conscious of bearing His image. Now that we know we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe and trust in Him, we now bear the Son's image, shining Him to others in our deeds, in our speech, blessing others, imitating our Creator who created to bless. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When we look at your heavens, when we see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you care for us? Yet, You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned us with glory and honor. You have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts, birds of the heavens, and fish of the sea. And so we declare, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.